Al Jazeera Podcasts. Today, Israel's occupation of Palestine on trial. Please be seated. The, sitting is the International Court of Justice is again hearing a case against Israel. The future of freedom, justice, and peace can begin here and now. And the court must decide whether Israel's occupation is illegal. Will it? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm Bernard Smith. I'm a correspondent for Al Jazeera English. I'm currently in The Hague, a very windy, cold, wet Hague at the International Court of Justice, covering uh, the hearings over whether Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories, the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza, whether the court should declare that illegal. Well, welcome back to The Take, Bernard. This is the second time in as many months the ICJ has heard a case brought against Israel. And it comes as Israel continues to strike Gaza in a war that has now killed nearly 30,000 Palestinians. The first one was brought by South Africa to address what has happened since October 7th. This one is different. What is this case about? This is the first time that the world court has been asked to look at in whole the occupation and the legality of the occupation. This is different because this actually started before uh, October 7th and, and the war on Gaza. These days of hearing since Monday have served to remind people who might not always be thinking about what's happening in the Palestinian territories is that there is a, an ongoing occupation. It's been going for 56 years. And Israel is changing the facts on the ground by allowing an explosion of settlements in the West Bank, making it much, much harder for the Palestinians to have their internationally recognized right to self-determination. Five lawyers representing Palestine, part of a team of at least 10, have addressed the court so far. One of them is Namira Negam. Israel restricts every aspect of Palestinians' life, from birth to death, resulting in manifest human rights violations and an overt system of repression and persecution. Treated as a burden and a demographic threat, Palestinians' rights to life, liberty, and their fundamental freedoms are systematically denied. And so now we have state, it's going to be giving all evidence uh, in argument as to why they believe that the occupation is illegal. There's a couple of outliers, which is the US and Fiji, who are arguing the contrary. It's unprecedented for the ICJ that this number of countries involved in one hearing. Hmm. So... I'm interested in what's stood out to you so far, because personally, I was struck by comments from the Palestinian ambassador to the UN, whose voice cracked, who broke down in tears as he spoke. 
the state of Palestine appeals to this court to guide the international community in upholding international law, ending injustice, and achieving a just and lasting peace, to guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children, not as demographic threat. Riyad Mansour is the, the permanent representative uh, to, to the UN of the, of the Palestinian Authority. And yeah, he, he broke down with emotion. He said, it's, it's so painful to be Palestinian today. So it was his cracking voice as he you know, tried to speak in front of these judges. A future in which no Palestinian and no Israelis is killed. A future in which... Two states live side by side in peace and security. You couldn't but be moved when you heard Riyadh Mansour speak. But as well as that, what, what actually really I've noticed is that every country or every speaker, apart from the US, I would say, so far, has used the same arguments to advance why they believe that Israel's occupation is illegal. The establishment and expansion of settlements, the destruction of property and infrastructure, the demolition of Palestinian homes. Israel is continuing its illegal practices in the West Bank, scaling up attacks, access restrictions, punitive house demolitions, and supporting settler violence that has displaced entire communities. The occupation by Israel has been conducted in profound defiance of international law. Essentially, they've said, look, you know, you have this settlement expansion unbridled and progressing at an enormous rate. There's 700,000 uh, Israeli settlers living in, in the West Bank. Israel's been doing that for decades, but it's really taken up a pace in the last few years. That is That demographic transfer is illegal under international law. All of them have been saying this. They've all been saying that this is preventing the Palestinians from their right to self-determination. And also the talk of apartheid. South Africa, of course, particularly powerful on this. We as South Africans sense, see, hear and feel to our core the inhumane discriminatory policies and practices of the Israeli regime as an even more extreme form of the apartheid. That was institutionalized against black people in my country. Because of the different way the law is applied to Palestinians in the West Bank. If you're Palestinian, as we know, you can't go down certain roads, you have to go through checkpoints, whereas if you're Israeli, you have freedom of movement. And so as, as he's repeated day after day, in testimony after testimony, it really begins to hit home that certainly in this environment, Israel doesn't have a lot of friends. Testimony after testimony, um, you mentioned. So, so far, ahead of this interview, the court heard from Colombia's representative, UAE, UAE's envoy. Um, they heard from Egypt, Cuba, and the U.S., as you mentioned. What was the U.S.'s argument? What did they present? Of course, it's the U.S. that has influence on Israel, and it's only the U.S., 
that can really rein in Israel or get a, get Israel uh, to change its policies. Although even the US, as we know, in the last few days is beginning to realize the limits of its influence on Israel. The US essentially said that it's not up to the court to make this ruling. There are many US Security Council resolutions that have already confirmed and reiterated the commitment of the UN to a two-state solution. And Israel should not be ordered or called to leave the occupied West Bank because it has what the US considers legitimate security needs. The court should not find that Israel is legally obligated to immediately and unconditionally withdraw from occupied territory. And the US says, look, we've been reminded of these needs uh, on October the 7th. Hmm. You wrote um, a blog post for the Al Jazeera Live blog in which you called what the US was offering a lot of dry legal arguments. That sounds like it might represent a lot of what this court is hearing. Is that representative? It is, but as I say, because it's being repeated in hearing after hearing after hearing, you are beginning to um, understand the sort of strong case that is being presented against Israel's occupation or the legality of it. The antidote to that dry legal argument um, seems to be stories from people, which I take it we're not hearing because that's not really the forum for this. But you have covered Palestine and Israel and the occupation for years. So for people who haven't been to the West Bank or to Gaza, what does Israeli occupation mean for Palestinians? Well, I'm going back to uh, Ramallah next week, straight from here. Wow. Continuing my coverage from there. And yet, the, the thing about the West Bank particularly, which is where I've spent a lot of time, is that certainly, definitely since October the 7th, the oppressive nature of the occupation is really suffocating life in the West Bank. The practical grief of living day to day, the checkpoints that mean a journey that should take 20 minutes takes three hours because of the, this apartheid system that prevents Palestinians using particular roads. The choking off of the economy. Palestinians can't move freely outside of the West Bank. Uh, even overseas, you have to get permission to leave the West Bank from the Israelis. So all of that, it's just become much more oppressive. Plus all the raids, the relentless raids in Janine, in Hebron, in Jericho, in Nablus, all over the West Bank, locking people down in their homes for hours on end. It just is a very oppressive atmosphere. It's not Gaza, of course. Nobody's saying it's as, as hellish as Gaza but it's a very difficult place to live. After the break, what this case means for the future of a Palestinian state. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you, to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Well, Bernard, as you said, more than 
50 countries are presenting oral arguments in this case at the International Court of Justice against Israel's occupation. But Israel is not one of them. And on Sunday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet declared Palestine's case in front of the ICJ illegitimate before the case had even begun and regardless of the outcome. Israel utterly rejects international diktats regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. A settlement, if it is to be reached, will come about solely through direct negotiations between the parties without preconditions. Israel will continue to oppose unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. You have reported from Tel Aviv recently. And on Wednesday, the Israeli Knesset, the country's parliament, passed a resolution stating the same thing. Why is Israel rejecting this out of hand? What are they worried about? Well, I think Israel rejects it out of hand. Is Netanyahu and his government made up of partly by extreme right-wing settlers. Netanyahu has domestic concerns and his own survivability in government. He's more worried about that, perhaps many people would argue, than bringing an end to this war. So Netanyahu is speaking to a domestic audience when he rejects out of hand the idea that there'll be a Palestinian state on his watch. You know, he will say this is rewarding terror, this is rewarding Hamas for its attack on Israel, the biggest uh, attack that Israel has uh, had on its people since its foundation. And if they reject the court, what recourse do Palestinians have to take? Well, the Palestinian foreign minister said it uh, after the US spoke earlier today. He said, look, we've been trying for decades through the UN and through other international forum to advance our course to advance the creation of a Palestinian state, a state alongside Israel, we've got nowhere. The liberations today are long overdue. Israel cannot be allowed to maintain its occupation and its illicit plans to end Palestinian existence must be stopped. So we come to the World Court because this is essentially our last chance. And what what the Palestinians are doing is, of course, this has been given new impetus by what by October the seventh and the and the consequent war in Gaza. But what the Palestinians are doing is trying to put back on the agenda the Palestinian demand for self determination and a Palestinian state, which had sort of slipped off the agenda, the international headlines over recent years. The Palestinians are using the hearing at the World Court, the genocide case that South Africa is bringing to remind people that they want a Palestinian state and they are will choose any avenue they can to advance their cause. Hmm. This isn't even the first time that Israel has been before the ICJ. They were sued by the Palestinians in 2004 over the wall that surrounds the occupied West Bank. What was the result of that? And is that any indication of what we might see here? Yeah, in 2004... The ICJ ruled that the separation wall that separates the occupied West Bank from Israel was illegal and Israel should take it down. Israel ignored the court's ruling and in fact it's extended the wall. I think it's three or four times longer now than it was when the ICJ first handed down that ruling. Now, the ICJ says that their rulings carry great legal weight and moral authority. Mm. So... 
the the idea, I suppose, is the more pressure that is put on Israel internationally, then Israel will find it harder to uh, resist that pressure. I would say, though, that Israel has fairly successfully resisted a lot of <laughs> international pressure, particularly recently over Gaza. Mm. So what it would do to take the Israelis to change, I can't tell you. Well, finally, Bernard, earlier I touched on the fact that the ICJ case we're talking about is not the one people might immediately think about. And that's because what comes to mind is South Africa's case, in which South Africa last month alleged that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The court ordered Israel to protect civilians and to report back on how it's doing that. So what do we expect Israel to tell the ICJ this weekend? Are there any rumblings about what might happen in the coming days? Well, no. I mean, we can see that despite the ICJ's calls for Israel, nothing has changed on the ground. And in fact, now we're hearing of this threatened invasion of Rafah, where, you know, all the Palestinians who are in the north of Gaza have, have fled. A member of Israel's war cabinet has given Hamas a deadline to release all the hostages, or the military will launch its offensive in Rafah. So that would be potentially catastrophic. So we know that when Israel responds to the ICJ, the ICJ says they won't make it public. Whether the South Africans decide after to make it public is up to them. But Israel is under no pressure, mm. if you like, to publicise its response. And then, of course, we'll have to wait for the court's final ruling much later on. And on this particular case, these hearings that are going on now, we're also not expecting to hear an opinion from the World Court until maybe about four or five months from now. So we'll probably be back here in four or five months to hear what the ICJ has to say about the legality of the occupation. Bernard, thank you for that summary. Thank you for this analysis. Thanks, Malika. Speak to you again. Thank you very much. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Zaina Badr with Chloe K. Lee, Veronisa Campana, Ashish Malhotra, Sariel Khalili, Nagin Oliayi, Miranda Lynn, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.